Hi everyone, this is Chris Campbell and welcome to the Food Institute Podcast. This week we will be discussing what emerging food trends could become most important in the next five years according to students at Cornell University. But before we get started, I'd like to thank everyone who's been listening to the podcast and ask that you share this episode with your friends and family. In addition to the Food Institute website, we're now available on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. So please subscribe, like, and share as this really extends our reach. So thank you again. And if there's another platform you'd like to see the show on, please let us know and we'll see what we can do to get us on there. So like I said at the beginning of the show, we partnered with Cornell University's Daniel Williams Hooker to survey just over 60 students participating in the school's food programs in order to get a better idea of what food industry students believe will be important in the years to come. We asked students 10 questions regarding food trends over the next five years on a sliding one to five scale with five representing the maximum importance. Additionally, we provided five multiple choice questions on targeted sectors to get a better idea on what could be important. While I wouldn't classify this survey as definitive, I do think it gives us a snapshot into the thinking of these emerging food leaders. But before we introduce these emerging food leaders, I thought it would be smart to introduce their leader, Professor Hooker. I asked Professor Hooker to introduce himself in a few words. I teach the dynamics of the food industry and consumer packaged goods. And I also have a, I don't know, 27 year career in the food industry in all aspects of the business from product ideation to all the way to shelf. And and I'm just lucky to be back with um, these great students that are joining me today on this podcast. Um, so let me let them introduce themselves. I'll, I'll kick it over to uh, Sonia. Hi, Sonia. Hi. Yeah. Um, my name is Sonia. I'm currently an exchange student here at Cornell. I'm originally from Germany and uh, doing my master's here. It's called the SEMS master. And uh, yeah, we all like all of us joining this podcast today had the pleasure of joining Dan's course. So um, that's where we already learned quite a lot about the food industry, also from a Cornell perspective. But um, myself, I've worked in FMCGs before, not so much food related, but um, more uh, um, shampoo and so on. <laughs> but I'm generally interested in the, in the, in the whole uh, industry, like consumer goods industry. And um, yeah, so that's me. Handing it over to Moritz. Thank you, Sonia. Thank you, Dan. I'm happy to be here today. Um, I'm also uh, from Germany, actually, um, and I'm with Sonia in the program. And I also had the pressure, pleasure um, to be in Dan's course. And before I came here to uh, Cornell, um, I had founded my startup doing um, my master's studies together with four friends, and it was a food delivery service in Germany for regional products and delivering it um, to local supermarkets, but also directly to people's um, front door. And I will probably um, work later on um, pursuing a career in an FMCG company. So handing over to Sini. Thanks, Moritz. Um, I guess I'm the, the black sheep among the students. I'm not from Germany. I am from Finland, so Northern Europe. Um, I am currently finalizing my uh, master's in management and international business. I specialize in strategy and have absolutely loved um, getting to know the, the food and, uh, and FMG industry in Dan's course this spring. And food is such an intricate and kind of intimate part of our lives. Um, so I, I want to continue looking into that industry and, and seeing how I could perhaps also then change it in the future. One of the most important topics covered in the survey was plant-based foods. In fact, when asked how important plant-based foods would be to the food industry in the years to come, 42.9% gave the maximum rating of 5 while an additional 41.3% answered with a 4. Sonia shared some insight into the overwhelming popularity of these types of products. 
I think it's all about sustainability and um, our cohort or like our age group. I think um, as part of our education, we really learn about, you know, like negative consequences of uh, caring about yourself and not about others. And so I think plant based food is like one major step in, in the right direction of um, finding a solution which allows you to have delicious food and uh, still take care of factors like the environment. And I think it's just the overall awareness that was created among our cohort um that kind of led to those results and i personally agree i think i voted the same (laughs) dan shared a story about his son who became a vegetarian early on in life highlighting the importance of these types of diets among younger consumers i have a a son who's in junior in in high school and two years ago he just decided he's going to become a vegetarian no rhyme or reason other than i think he thought that it was healthier was better for him um you know he was an animal lover still is an animal lover and he's still a vegetarian to this day Dan's anecdote really highlighted one of the themes we saw in the survey. When asked what type of diet would see the largest growth, 71.4% of respondents responded with vegan and vegetarian. I asked Sini her thoughts on this stat. I think that's very prevalent in the younger generations. Um, I was delighted to see um, back in Helsinki, my hometown, um, at the the local university, when suddenly um, the the university cafeteria stopped, for example, offering certain meat products or only offering certain meat products only on certain days of the week or so on. And this was a a student-owned organization that was running these cafeterias. So so really, the, the younger generations are pushing for these changes to happen. We also asked students in the survey which product categories they thought would face the biggest challenge from plant-based competitors in the years to come. Dairy products garnered 28.6% of the vote, while seafood and shellfish got 12.7% of the vote. Poultry only had 6.3% of the vote, with the clear winner being red meat, with 52.4% of total survey respondents believing it would be the most disrupted category by plant-based foods. I asked Moritz why he thought this was. I think humans have a closer relationship to cows in the end. So they they feel it more if they suffer um, more than if other kind of animals suffer. So in the end, I think that's one big part of why people start to, to be become vegetarian or vegan um, is really how they see how the animals live. And I think that's way more prominent at red meat than with fish or uh, poultry. We also asked students about low slash no alcohol beverages and also the influence of THC slash CBD in the food industry in the years to come. The results were somewhat surprising. 33.3% gave CBD and THC a 3 on our 1 to 5 scale when asked how important it would be over the course of the next 5 years. Additionally, 23.8% gave it a 4 while 19% gave it a 2. Sini provided some insight into why these numbers were a little bit lower than the Food Institute was expecting younger generations don't see these these products or substances as a novelty because it's legal or not uh, they've been around for a long time um, their like parents and grandparents have have used these products as well and I, I don't think the some of these products they may not have the kind of the the novelty that the legalization um, has brought as much as it might look from a, a marketer's point of view We also asked students how important they thought low alcohol and no alcohol cocktails, wine, spirits, and beers would be over the next five years. This is a trend we've been looking at the Food Institute for most of 2021, and to our surprise, we found that 31.7% of the students gave this a 2 on that 1 to 5 scale, with 3 garnering 28.6% of the vote. 
Dan shared his thoughts on the matter from a different angle. I would say, I would say from, from my age group, I would say that this would probably score a lot higher, um, maybe post pandemic than during pandemic. But uh, I think, you know, consuming less alcohol to be more healthy um, is certainly a movement that I think an older generation is, is looking at. And I think that's why you might see some of these big uh, alcohol beverage companies diving into this space. And there's some, you know, some great products out on the market from, you know, Budweiser and the other the big companies. One of the issues that we tried to get a better handle on was how important social and political issue engagement would be for food companies over the next five years. The students overwhelmingly said it would be very important, with 47.6% of the vote giving it a maximum rating of 5, followed by 28.6% of the vote, which gave it a rating of 4. I asked Sonia to try to explain her cohort's thinking on the matter. I think it's just a very effective way of them to connect with consumers. So I think like the best in class example is Ben and Jerry's. So I think actually already since they were founded, they were kind of positioning themselves on, on social um, topics. And um, yeah, their customers, that, that's what they love to see. That's what they expect from the brand. That's part of the brand identity. So I think you have brands like Ben and Jerry's where it was always like a bit like a big topic to actually yeah, shape the brand identity. But there are more and more um, brands like jumping on that, uh, like joining the trend. So um, I think we learned about Pepsi, who had this Kendall Jenner, Black Lives Matter um, ad, which which then actually failed because customers didn't perceive it to be authentic. So it's actually like a big risk also for for uh, companies to position themselves. But um, I think just in general, um, especially because of the importance of social media and people or like consumers want brand like they want brand that brands take opinions and that they position themselves and so uh, for instance uh, when there was um yeah like the the black life matter movement like this big social media d- debates going on last summer there were so many brands joining it and and kind of making very clear this is an important issue um we stand behind it and um yeah so i think it's just part of of, of our 21st century and communicating with brands and um yeah consumers would like to see it and they connect with brands that way and they pick brands based on that. Yeah, I can add to that, that I think companies are more and more realizing that it's it's not just about meeting the consumer in, in what the consumer demand currently is. I think it's also a question of companies realizing their kind of weight in society, their responsibility in society um, and taking ownership of that. Um, we've we all know kind of what the um, environmental and social damage we as a society um, can do. So, and there's, there's decades of harm done that we're now trying to undo. And um, I think companies are, are now kind of rising up to the challenge of uh, making sure that we will continue to have also decades and centuries ahead of us in, in being able to um, still produce those kinds of products or still have those those markets and, um, and have those brands. Sustainable sourcing ranked very highly in the survey, with nearly two-thirds of respondents giving it a maximum score of five. Sonia tried to explain some of the reasoning behind this thinking. And I think it's also that consumers pick those brands on purpose because, I mean, well, this is not food industry, but Patagonia, for instance, people buy that brand and they wear it very proudly to show off that they are like consumers who care about the environment. So I think um, with the food industry, this will become more and more important as well, that you buy certain brands because it then shows your guests maybe or uh, just proving it to yourself that you're a good person. And uh, yeah. And I think also it's becoming more and more 
a differentiation factor between different brands, how much you put into sustainability and how much effort you, you put in there. Because as you know, like the FMCG market is really competitive and getting there and a specific attribute to get a competitive edge about um, the other companies. I think that's, that's really also an important point to have an addis additional sales argument to buy in, in the end your product. Somewhat surprisingly, environmental causes were the clear winner of a question asking about the most important social cause for the food industry today, with 85.7% of the vote. Dan shared his thoughts on the divide between the European and U.S. markets on this cause, and then the students provided their insights from their own upbringing. Um, my thought was, we, we in the States, we, don't, we haven't adopted some of the climate and packaging and investments in sustainability that, that you guys have over in Europe, um, not near as fast. Um, as it is over there. I'm not so sure about it, to be honest, at least speaking for Germany and Norway and Switzerland. <laughs> so the, the European countries I lived in uh, recently. Um, I think what they do is like they have very good recycling systems in place, but they still use so much plastic. And I think there's a lot of room for improvement. But you start to see in the supermarkets that they more and more like instead of having plastic bags where you pay your, like where you put your vegetables, they have reusable bags that you just bring every time. So there's like a slow but there is some so some shifts uh towards being more sustainable and like shopping behind but just in general packages like chocolate is off sometimes covered in like three plastic layers and i think um there's still some room for improvement but recycling in general is, is another topic like also plastic bottles in general like all plastic bottles all cans everything is 100 recycled in germany for instance so what I will say is that um, comparing my my business studies, both in Finland, which is a country known for its uh, forestry industry and especially making paper and paper products. So we do a lot of uh, uh, packaging for, for food products. Um, and then my studies here at Cornell, um, I, I realized at some point that um, although we talk about sustainability and I'm completely in awe of, of what some of the companies um large um, um, food companies in the U.S. are doing at the same time, there's a term that I, I never heard in the U.S. context, and it's uh, closing the loop. And that's something that really uh, was almost bombarded <laughs> at us in my in my studies uh, back at my home university. So this idea of, of not just uh, producing better, but also uh, truly making sure that uh, the whole system works together, that uh, supply chain supply chain agents are working together to um, like one 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 party uses another party's uh, scrap or waste as then an input in their process and so on. So uh, overall, um, making sure that um, we are taking better care of of our inputs and, and outputs in those processes. But there's also this other trend uh, when it comes to sustainability. It's, it's kind of like not buying all the big brands all the time, but buying locally. And I think that's actually where more at startup is quite interesting. Like going to local farm, he can explain much better than me. But uh, even here in Ithaca, if you go to the local farmers markets, you see a number of young people like Cornell students uh, going there, doing a bit of shopping, but also trying the local food there. So um, instead of just always buying the big brands, the big you know, like chains and uh, yeah, just going for, for regional options. Yeah, I, I think one one big part of buying locally and regionally is kind of the freshness of products. For example, when looking at like um, salad or, or fruit, um, and especially salad loses so fast all the vitamins um, it has when it's, um, when it's harvested, 
Um, so the best is to directly uh, consume it directly after the harvest. And if you then look at a really long supply chain, if it's coming from even another country or even another continent, um, there a lot of vitamins get lost. And, they, and that's also a different product when not looking only at salad. So I think that's one big part of looking regionally, but also like when buying regionally, um, the supply chain is just way, way shorter. So um, there's less um, environmental damage made to through all the transport. Speaking of transport, one of the topics the survey tried to get a better understanding of was how important food and meal delivery would be over the course of the next five years. While it seemed reasonable that food and meal delivery would become less important as the pandemic waned in the U.S., it really surprised me to find that more than half of surveyed students believed that it would be very important over the next five years, with 50.8% of the vote giving it a 5 on that 1 to 5 scale. Additionally, 36.5% gave it a 4 on that 1 to 5 scale, showcasing the incredible popularity of these services and the prediction that they would remain popular in the years to come. Sini provided a rationale as to why grocery and meal delivery would remain important in the next half decade and beyond. Yeah, this is a great question. Um, I think the, the pandemic really um, kind of offered this offered us this opportunity to um, try completely new consumer behaviors that we maybe weren't really ready to, uh, or the industry wasn't quite there yet. Uh, a lot of these services have really boomed during the pandemic. And as we now move back to whatever is normal after the pandemic, I think um, the the true value of these services is to be a supplement to what we already know as like some people will still want to to go to the grocery store and do their shopping, pick out their their meats and cheeses and and vegetables themselves. Uh, but right now, like it's a really nice option to also be able to order certain things online or have um, have a like a store pickup option or um, or have meals delivered to your home. As people go back to work and we're not sheltering so much anymore, we'll, we will get busier in life again. And this busyness will then mean we will need to have that convenience. And now that we've gotten kind of a taste of that convenience of having everything delivered to our door and we'll never have to leave our, our houses ever again, uh, some of that behavior will be a little bit sticky and we'll, we'll want to have that option, even if it is just an option. To, to still have it around to to make sure that live our lives the the way that it, it kind of makes sense uh, post-pandemic as well. Yeah, I agree with Sydney. So I think for, for many, for instance, retail stores, they had like a, there was large potential in Corona for people to just, for instance, try grocery, like ordering groceries online, because before that, there was always a bit of a like barrier, like will my, my food be fresh enough, enough, for instance, and, and now it turned out it actually does work quite nicely. And they got into the habit. So I think now, for instance, for the retailers, it, it's all about, you know, like making that habit stick and uh, trying to prevent that people go back into their old behaviors. So I think ways of doing that could be, especially now that everything opens up again, just like, yeah, pushing their services with offers, with subscription services and um, yeah, or making sure that you have this or you, or you really make sure that um, customers understand this omni-channel experience. So what Cindy said that you can go to the shop. But then if you want to buy like, I don't know, water bottles who are super happy that you have them delivered to your place. So I'm kind of changing that habit in a direction that you can have both options. And I think also one important factor is that just the processes are now kind of optimized uh, of doing of doing ways and um, both sides of, 
of this of the stream sees the benefits of it for example when looking at local food delivery services um like now as they they tried it already the local farmers really see the benefits of of selling their products uh maybe through a delivery service to the customer directly at, at, at their village um because it gener generates them direct revenue and without partnering with a really big um, company beforehand so that which leaves them more flexibility and also the consumer in the end um, to receive the groceries you you order directly to your home saves time and like i think what sonia and Sini said having already experienced um, the benefits of it um, definitely make people stick or at least um, use it from time to time i think you can also see it when looking at for example, in Europe, at companies like Willas, which are kind of exploding in the moment um, and are one of the unicorns to just deliver food quite, quite fast. To close out the conversation, I asked the students to look beyond the survey and provide whatever trends they thought would be important over the next five years. Sonia shared what she thought would be most important, and then Sini and Moritz followed suit. Well, I know that some of our friends here at Cornell take something like a lab-grown meat. <laughs> Maybe that will become like a d disrupting um, thing. For me, like coming from Europe, one thing that that's uh, a big trend is superfoods. Um, so every, like every two years or so, it changes. So once it's the avocado and then it's quinoa and then it's chia. And um, I think people really start caring about making sure that they get the best nutrition for their body that they can get. So, and, and even just taking those supplements in forms of tablet, like pills. And so I think that will like just this optimization, the thinking of, I, 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 yeah, my body is a temple and I have to give, give the body the best you can, you can get. Um, yeah. So I think that will, that trend will increase even further in the future. That's a Sonia, great point. Uh, I fully agree. And with that, I think comes this increased, um, focus on what your relationship with food is. So um, we have become quite far from the <laughs> the hunter-gatherer days of, of how uh, food was uh, basically produced and harvested and, and brought to a dinner table. Um, right now we can get food at any time, anywhere. Um, and a lot of times the food has gone through quite a bit of processing and there's not a whole lot of transparency in what goes into that process. So I think, especially with, with this idea of trying to maybe optimize, find your own diet, move away from standard diets and, and just kind of really uh, customize your own way of eating. With that also co then comes this idea of, of maybe having more personal relationships with the producers of your food uh, or the, the retailers of your food. So um, I'm, I'm kind of really enjoying following some smaller food companies online and seeing how they engage with their audience. And, and these are companies that really do focus on, on serving um, maybe more kind of these, these or op serving opportunities for consumers to really optimize their own way of eating. However, kind of, or whatever that optimization means uh, for, for different people. I, I think the both mentioned trends are really, uh, coming in the future. Um, I see also another trend um, e evolving, uh, kind of the trend of having partly ready-made food. So like high quality food, which in the end just need a little of preparation at home. So people feel they cook themselves, but it's like really convenient. 
Um, and I think for this, it's important for CPG companies to really also look into this as more and more um, products are probably purchased in a bike and like together to get get everything easy as um, for one for one full um, dish. Um, so I, I could imagine that this is becoming more and more important. I let Professor Hooker also give his prediction of what could be important in the years to come. I might add to it's still a very ad driven industry and where where does private label come in or private brands or own brands and um, how many retailers will take the leap and control more of that relationship they have with their customer and the, the good way to do it is what what Sini and Sonia and Moritz are talking about through great quality nutrition and products they can hopefully I think connect with their consumers um, create a more loyal uh, and repeat purchase consumer and you know that lifetime value will grow over time so I think it's all connected but uh, that's a big part of it I think too and that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the Food Institute podcast I hope this episode really helped you get a better idea of what the next generation of food industry leaders expect to see in the years to come special thanks to Professor Daniel Williams Hooker with Cornell University and also to Sini, Moritz and Sonia if you're new to the Food Institute podcast, please follow, like, and share. And please visit foodinstitute.com to learn more about membership, sponsorship, and advertising opportunities. So until next time, this is Chris Campbell, signing off.